to you all, and good morning, and uh, Hawaii. Jim, let me be the first to volunteer to do all I can for you, feast. <laughs> Nine one. No. Considering I'll be in Africa. God willing, and the planes are flying, I guess. Well, to get started here, I want to do a brief review because it's so easy to forget what might have gone before, and this series is getting, in, in one sense, elongated and, and hard to remember back <laughs> this far. But we began in the Minor Prophets some months ago, beginning with Hosea, went on to Joel and Amos, and I want to lump those three together because they basically describe our plight, plight, and our future. The setting is the day of the Lord, the time of the end, right now that we are beginning to approach. Hosea uh, begins to describe the problems that we have concurrently in the church, and our own problems as individuals, and our relationship with God. Uh, a very strong and severe indictment on us. Then Joel, setting of the day of the Lord, goes through some of the same thing, calling for fasting and prayer, uh, calling for repentance. Amos goes ahead to describe in even more detail the problems that we are having today. And I think we're pretty well familiar with that scenario at this point and realize that uh, these scriptures are for us. They are not for some people three or four thousand years ago, though they have applied to people all along in whatever age they may have lived, and the pattern has been enacted over and over again with each generation because human nature does not change, because conditions prevail in which people become slack, lackadaisical, uh, and begin to fall asleep at the switch spiritually. Herbert Armstrong constantly kept telling us that we were falling asleep at the switch. I remember hearing that in the 50s, the 60s, 70s, and then not only did we fall off, uh, fall asleep at the switch, we also went off the track. And that's really what Hosea, Joel, and Amos are telling us, that we went off the track and that it is time to get back on it. He tried in his elderly and in that sense feeble way in the last three, four, five years of his life to help us see that, but we did not really grasp it. And I suppose we thought it might have been talking about someone else because, you know, when it went back to the two trees or whatever, we said, well, I wonder who he's talking to now. But lo and behold, it was thee and me. Certainly me, I know that. So the culmination of the Minor Prophets is going to be the day of the Lord and the return of Jesus Christ, and we'll see that, that these uh, books go together just like the chapters of a book. I think we've already seen how they flow one from the other in this series. So Hosea, Joel, and Amos were to warn us of the problem and what we need to do about it and how the end of time is upon us, so this is a very urgent matter. It's not something that we can go back and dust the history books off and see what was wrong with ancient Israel. It's here for you and me today as modern Israel spiritual Israel to give heed to these warnings. So once he indicates what the problem both in the church and in the nation of Israel or nations of Israel is, then he uses Obadiah and Jonah to show who our major enemies are. That 
is apart from Babylon, which is all around us and pervades the United States and the rest of the world, that, of course, Satan is our greatest enemy, but he is the king of Babylon. So we have a Babylonian system worldwide around us. We live right in the middle of it, and in that sense, we are a church or a spiritual Israel in captivity to Babylon. Hopefully, some of those scriptures in Jeremiah and Zechariah 1 and so on apply. And since the church has been here growing in Babylon and in the captivity of Babylon for nigh on to 70 years, depending on how God counts from 1927 or 1934 or whatever date he picks, I hope that 70 years applies to the church today and that we're near the end of the 70 years of our captivity here and will soon be leaving. That's another matter. But it is germane to the time that we are living in, and Zechariah is coming up in this series, by the way, fairly soon. A matter of months, I guess. But Obadiah talks about the Edomites, who would always be an enemy and a thorn in the side of Jacob, trying to destroy Jacob, just as Esau, the brother of Jacob, did originally. And they had been at war with us, sometimes openly, but mostly covertly. And Obadiah points that out very clearly. They are conspirators who hide, who do not wish to be seen, and try to destroy the church. Their real purposes, they hide. Just as those in worldwide hid their real purposes. Oh, we're not going to change anything. And then they would do it. And we're all familiar with that situation. So we saw in Obadiah that those peoples have infiltrated the church today. And not only that, but Jonah, the next book, uh, talked about the Assyrian and many of the names at the headquarters of the Worldwide Church of God under those who have an Edomite name who are directly in charge have Assyrian names. I don't think that is probably just by coincidence. I won't call names here, but... Uh, you can analyze those who are at the top there, and you will find several Assyrians right at the top, and uh, possibly one Greek, which uh, Zechariah says that your sons, O Zion, will conquer the sons of Greece, uh, back about chapter 12 or 13 of Zechariah. So our enemies are laid out before us, and the same is true of the physical nation around us. Uh, Esau, as a nation, as a people, is trying to destroy Jacob as a people. So they are conspiring today to destroy the United States, Great Britain, South Africa, Australia, and all the other nations of Israel. It is something they cannot avoid. It is a bitterness that they have never been able to get over. And whether they know who they are or not, and I suspect some do, they are preparing to destroy the United States and the rest of Israel physically, just as the spiritual Edomite, Assyrian, and Greek are destroying the church at the behest of Satan the devil. So Jonah was to deliver a message to Assyria to ask them to repent and not destroy Israel. And they repented and it upset Jonah. But that repentance did not last long. And we're going to go into, ultimately today, the book of Nahum, which is not another warning to the Assyrian, but a judgment passed on Assyria. 
that because the repentance was not long-lasting, and they, they will go ahead and destroy Israel, and then God's judgment will come on them as a result of it. From Jonah, the warning to the Assyrians, he didn't give Obadiah, or Obadiah did not give the Edomite too much of a warning, in one sense because God knows that they are too bitter to repent. Read Hebrews 12 about how Esau even sought repentance with tears and could not change that bitterness of heart. So Obadiah is pretty much a pronouncement of judgment on them for what they are doing and will do to Israel in this end time and how God is going to destroy them. And he tells the Assyria and Jonah that I will destroy you unless you repent. And they did temporarily. From Jonah we go into Micah, which gets right back to instruction for the church. And as we've gone through this series, I've tried to point out that there is a parallel timeline between what is happening to the church and what is happening to the nations of Israel physically. The church timeline has been moving a little ahead, or faster than, the timeline on the physical nations. Because these things which are happening in the church to us right now, the scattering, destruction and famine and sword physically are the same spiritual or same sword, famine and pestilence that are happening spiritually to you and me in the church today. But in the book of Micah, it seems that those lines cross. And this gets a little tricky then because while we've been able to see a parallel line moving in the same direction with what's happening to the church going a little faster than what's developing in the world, although they're, they're moving forward all the time, we've been able to see what's happening to us, and then we can predict by that what is about to happen to the nations. But there is inevitably a point where what is happening to the church begins to happen to the world, and we in the church are still physical, living within the nations of Israel, so it begins to happen to us too at the same time. That is why Matthew 24, Daniel 11, Revelation 12 talk about persecution, martyrdom, and so on on the church. And then many of understanding will fall, as Daniel puts it. But those who do know their God will do exploits, Daniel goes on to say. So this, there is a time coming that is very fearful because it will not just be spiritual jeopardy that we are facing, but both spiritual and physical jeopardy. That's why Christ warned us, fear not him who is able to kill the body, but he who is able to kill body and soul. Spiritual salvation is all that really matters, even though we love our hides physically. So once these lines cross, and I think that's what happens here in Micah 4 and 5. So I want to pick it up there in introducing the book of Nahum because the Assyrian comes on the scene here. Now remember that Isaiah and Micah were written at the time when the threat of Assyria was very strong upon Judah. Israel had already gone into captivity. I'm speaking historically here. And Judah was about to. So Isaiah addresses primarily Judah. 
though he does mention Israel as a whole occasionally, the whole book of Isaiah is basically written to Judah, as is the book of Micah, because they are the ones who are on the griddle at that particular time, about to be taken captive. And I think that parallel, and I've mentioned this, is the same with the church today. If I am correct in saying that the pattern is that Israel, or the ten tribes, represent worldwide, they're basically already gone into the captivity of Babylon, Egypt, and the Assyrian, and so on and so forth. They basically lost it. Those who are still in jeopardy, in that sense, are Judah, those who have split off from worldwide and who have retained. Yet Jeremiah 3 says that even treacherous Judah, her sister, will also fall. I think you would get the drift there. And that is that those who have also split off from worldwide and who are being treated separately from worldwide at this point, still struggling spiritually, still uh, at least in lip service, giving credence and glory to God, while moving on, maybe have simply basically kept the right doctrines so still have essentially the truth, but are losing the spirit. And we have to worship in spirit and in truth. Both are required. And it is that spirit of zeal and first love that we are lacking. That excitement of obedience to the new things we learned when we first came in. So those who have remained are slowly losing that. And you and I will also lose that if we are not very, very careful and diligently regarding the issues of the heart. So Micah addresses the daughter of Zion here in chapter 4 and tells her to prevail, to give birth, verse 10, be in pain and labor to bring forth a daughter of Zion like a woman in travail. So he's telling us that we're giving birth to righteousness. We covered this two sermons ago, this particular aspect of it. So he's addressing the church directly here because the physical nations of Israel have not reached this point yet to where they are in great tribulation about to die physically and the birth of the millennium is right in front of them. So it will, I'm sure, apply in principle to them as well, but it applies to the church right now because you and I are on the line. Judgment is now on spiritual Israel. You and I are being judged right now. And whether or not we come to have the holiness, the righteousness, the peace, the fullness of the Spirit of God, and the attitude and mind of Jesus Christ is what we're being tested on. This is our chance. This is also the travail and the pain that we're going through because it does not come easy to you and me to be like Christ. We are deceitful. We are desperately wicked by nature. And we are fighting against that daily to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ to become like he is. In that sense, and don't misunderstand me here, the church doesn't give birth to Jesus. By character, we do. By likeness, we do. He is living his life in us, he says. So God uses the analogy here of birth 
that we, he, was, he is like this, and our spiritual birth should create an image of Christ. We are to be like him. So that is the struggle you and I are today engaged in. And then he talks toward the end of this chapter about rising and threshing daughter of Zion. The daughter of Zion being a daughter that Christ picks out and says, I will work through her to lead my church against the Assyrian. That's what we find in chapter 5. But we're talking about the time when the Assyrian comes into our land. So we already have had the Assyrian and the Edomite enter the church and destroy. But now we're looking at the time when the Assyrian enters into our land. That is the threat that is over us today. That the beast and the false prophet are arising, that they are planning and conspiring, and the Edomites with them, to destroy the nations of Israel. That's what's coming next, and that's how these two parallel lines of what's happening in the church and what is happening in the world are going to begin to cross when the attack comes on this country. Perhaps the attack on the church would come even before the physical attack. I don't know for sure. But we best be ready, regardless, because persecution is going to come, as per Revelation 12, where it says Satan will be cast down and come and persecute the church. It is only after that persecution reaches a certain level that the end of chapter 12 says the church is given wings of an eagle and flees to the wilderness. So don't expect that we'll get off scot-free. These lines are coming together. So that is the threat that Micah gives. He tells us here in chapter 6, verse 8, and I want to review this because this is a critical issue. Micah 6, verse 8. He has showed you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That is what is before you and me today. To come to have these three qualities, to do these three things. I want to intersperse here a story from my own life to give us a little idea of what the picture is of what you and I are going through and why. When my oldest son was still in diapers, just beginning to toddle, I remember we had a deacons and elders meeting. They had those bells meetings you might remember. That was back in the 60s. And our living room at that point was divided so that I had my office sort of in one end and a little bit of a partition there, and then the rest of the living room was uh, was sort of separate, what they called a Florida room uh, in Miami at that time. So we were having the meeting on my office side, and my oldest son, I guess my only son at that point, the other brother of them had been born, but uh, he was still in diapers and just toddling around. So all the adults were in this room considering the words of God. Well, this child, not being a dumb child, was self-entertaining. And he had found a way, without the adults around, to entertain him to take care of things. So they had a break for coffee and so on. Uh, in the meeting, I walked into the other side to see what their son is doing. 
and he had become so ingenious that he had learned just in that hour that we had been sitting there that he could reach back in his diaper and he could bring out whatever was in his diaper there and he could sort of make mud pies <laughs> and, and he could make rice or meatballs I guess you'd have to say and, and he was winding those up on the coffee table <laughs> now I only want to tell you this part of the story so that you understand this is not a dumb child ingenious I say this tongue in cheek I hope I don't bite my tongue <laughs> But we've all had children. All right. We've established he was a pretty smart kid. Now, I love to dandle my son on my knee. I love to play with him. Uh, sometimes when I was sitting at my desk, he would crawl over, and I would put him up on the desk, and, and like a kitten, he would sit there and kick his legs and knock all the pens and papers around and enjoy being with Dad for a few minutes in the middle of my work. This is something he truly enjoyed, to be up on Dad's desk. That sort of moved him up in the world, I guess. And we would laugh and play and coo and giggle and the things that fathers and sons do. Well, one day, maybe I'll tie Richard's recent series on showering in here a little bit. One day, he was sitting on the floor, and I asked him to do something that he dearly loved to do. Let us come here. I held up my arms so I could set him up on the desk and play with him a few minutes. Now, get this. This is something he wanted to do, something he loved, something he looked forward to, something he would crawl over and ask for, okay? Like Christians, so they want to obey God. They want to serve God. They want to be with God. They love Him, they say. So I hold out my hands and I say, Matt, come here. No. He rears back, sets his little, I don't know, 14, 16, 18 month old jaw, and will not come here. Oh boy. I have never seen that kind of rebellion, stubbornness, willfulness, selfishness, in this kid prior to this time. But all of a sudden, he had decided he was going to test me on something that he actually enjoyed doing. Well, this went on. I don't remember the exact time frame, but for three or four hours, I would say, come here, Matt. No. He didn't say no, but that was the whole body language. So I would pick him up and smack his rear end and set him right back down in the same spot. And I pleaded. I begged. I cajoled. I did everything in my power, every angle I could think of to get past his rebellion and get him to come to me. But he would not. His mother was in the other room crying, not trying to interfere. She knew it had to be done. I mean, this was upsetting to the whole household. And here I am, all hundred and whatever pounds of me. I was skinny then. <laughs> trying to get this 15-pound, 
chance to do what I wanted. No way, Jose. I don't think he really grasped what was happening. Just as the church today does not quite grasp what is happening to it and why. But he was in the middle of it, and he kept getting smacked on the rear end. He had reserved his heart, his will, his body, his mind, and his soul to himself. I will not do what Dad says. Can you think of anybody like that? Let's say spiritually, who has a deceitful, desperately wicked heart, who wants his way, who gives lip service to God, who wants basically in his heart to do that which God says, and delights in it when he does do it, wants to have fervent, effectual good prayers, and delights in it when it does happen, but has difficulty getting it done and rebels against it with every fiber of being at all the times, looking to do what self wants to do and not what the Father wants to do. I can think of someone like that. Paul. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, that I find myself doing. So now we know who that fits. Paul. But you know who else it fits? Exactly. So what was happening to my son there is what's happening to you and I. How many times did Christ say, I would have reached out to you, I would have tried to help, like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. That's the way the church is today. We want to do what God says, and yet we have this purpose, this resolve, this submission problem of our carnal human nature that does not want to submit to the Father. Even though when we do, we enjoy it and are thankful for it and are happy with ourselves when we finally do accomplish it from time to time. But it is so difficult. Now this kid sat there until he was so tired that he was beginning to wobble sitting in his diaper. His eyes would begin to close, but he would not and he would wake up every time I smacked his rear end <laughs> and cry. But he was getting so weary. And I'm sitting there. Please, please, please. I can't let you win. But this is killing me. Even as God sits on his throne today and sees what we are doing, and he says, this is killing me. I'm using the metaphor there. God is not going to die. But it hurts him to see his children the way we are. So he pleads. He cajoles. He entices. He encourages. He gives visions of the future in the scriptures. And yet at the same time, he's very honest with us and tells us what we are. I even ordered, commanded this child. Nothing I was so relieved when that kid, almost asleep, purposely leaned forward. He leaned toward me, and it wasn't just another wobble. He actually purposely said, I give up, Dad, and leaned forward into my arms. 
You talk about happy, tears of joy, excitement, hugs, loves. Very close, touching moment once the rebellion was gone. Once he submitted and walked humbly with his father. Then I delighted in mercy. I was so happy. I was so glad the ordeal was over. And the, the tears, the hurt, the pain that he and I both felt were over. And we could embrace and love and feel so close as father and son. That's exactly what God is doing with the church today. Continuing to chasten us, to scatter us, to peel us as Isaiah says. To get us to the point we submit and walk humbly with him. That we do justly, that we do the right things and that we love mercy with each other. That's what he's after. Then I delighted in mercy. And I want to read that down here in verse 18 of chapter 7. Who is a God like to you, who pardons iniquity and passes by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retains not his anger forever, because he delights in mercy. There is the God we worship. He just can't wait until this thing turns, till the axial period is over, when our rebellion subsides and the rebellion of physical Israel subsides in great tribulation spiritually and then physically, and we all turn to God with our whole hearts. That's what he's looking for. Now I want to go back to Ezekiel 11. This is all a prelude now to the book of Nahum because it has to do with us. It has to do with why God sends the Assyrian into our land. But we are still like my son was. And that most of the church, brethren, and it grieves me to say this, most of the church is going to ignore the instruction of God. Only a remnant will come and turn with their whole heart. Let's see it here in Ezekiel 11. Here he talks about the captivity that the Jews were in and in Babylon at that time. And he says that some will say it is not near, verse 3. Let us build houses. This city is the cauldron and we be the flesh. Therefore prophesy against them. Prophesy, O son of man. There are some today who are saying it's 30, 40 years off. We have a lot of time. This is talking about today. Now earlier in Jeremiah, God had told them when they first went into captivity to go ahead and build houses, plant vineyards. It is going to be a long time that you are going to be in Babylon. But now Ezekiel is addressing the time when this captivity is almost over. And that's where we are today. It's almost over. And we should not be busy building houses, doing the things of this life. We should be busy getting close to God. Busy coming within His will. Now, if you're building a house, I'm not trying to persecute you here. But I'm saying that our attention, our focus, should be on our spiritual house, not physical house. We'll see that more in this series as we go on. Verse 5, And the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me and said to me, Speak, thus says the Lord, 
Thus have you said, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind, every one of them. God is aware of what we're thinking, how we're approaching this. You've multiplied your slain in this city. You've filled the streets thereof with the slain. Yes, we have, spiritually speaking. The church has many wounded and dead. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, your slain whom you've laid in the midst of it, they are the flesh, and this city is the cauldron, but I will bring you forth out of the midst of it. So whatever it is that we are in right now, God says he's going to bring us out. You fear the sword, and I will bring a sword upon you, says the Lord God. Isaiah 8 says there is a conspiracy. Don't fear it, fear me. If we fear the sword too much and are trying to save our physical hides, God says he will bring the sword upon us. I will bring you out of the midst thereof and deliver you into the hands of strangers and will execute judgments against you. You shall fall by the sword. You see, once this line is crossed where what is happening to the church is also happening to the world in a physical way, people in God's church are going to fall by the physical sword, not just the spiritual. Verse 12, And you shall know that I am the Lord, for you have not walked in my statutes, neither executed my judgments, but have done after the manners of the heathen that are round about you. Let's see, the verse, end of verse 13, He fell on his face, Ezekiel, and I cried with a loud voice and said, Ah, Lord God, will you make a full end of the remnant of Israel? Are you going to destroy all of us? Verse 16, Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, Although I have cast them far off among the heathen, and although I have scattered them among the countries, yet will I be to them as a little sanctuary in the countries where they shall come. Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, I will even gather you from the people and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And they shall come here and they shall take away all the detestable things and all the abominations. Verse 19, notice. And I will give them one heart, and I will put a new heart or a new spirit within you, and I will take the stony heart out of their flesh, and will give them a heart of flesh. So this rebellion, this selfishness, this desire to do it our way is going to go away if we were included in this. How can God put us together in peace and harmony and happiness as long as we have our own resolve and our own self-will and way? Where we have not learned to esteem others better than ourselves. A lot of New, New Testament instruction goes into this as well. Chapter 12, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, you dwell in the middle of a rebellious house, which have eyes to see. We, we're in the middle of a spiritual church which has eyes to see and see not. They have ears to hear and hear not. For they are a rebellious house. My son had eyes and ears physically to hear, see what his father was trying to do. But he would not or he was in a rebellious mood. And all these prophecies back here apply to the church today, to you and to me. But most of the church will not hear because we are a rebellious church. 
Therefore, you son of man, prepare your stuff for removing and remove by day in their sight. And you shall remove from your place to another place in their sight. It may be they will consider. So they be a rebellious house. This doesn't apply to me. Maybe they will consider. You shall bring forth your stuff by day in their sight as stuff for removing, and you shall go forth at even in their sight as they that go forth into captivity. Then he says to dig a hole in the wall and carry your stuff out through the hole that they might see. Now you and I have a responsibility here to do what Micah instructed us. To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. You and I have an opportunity for the rest of the church to do as Ezekiel did here, to follow God's instructions, to not be rebellious. And it's in us too, very much in us as individuals, to be rebellious like everyone else. But if we will hear, if we will understand this message of Ezekiel, then we will set an example. We'll dig a hole spiritually, whatever it takes. And we will set an example for the rest. Maybe they'll listen, maybe they won't. But we can individually be a sign to the rest of the church. Verse 6, In their sight shall you bear it upon your shoulders, and carry it forth in the twilight. You shall cover your face if you see not the ground, for I have set you for a sign to the house of Israel. Ezekiel was a specific sign, but he wrote his book for the rest of us. And we have an individual opportunity to set a spiritual example for the rest of the church. My son didn't come when I called. But after that, I don't remember him ever doing that again. I won. That rebellion, that particular rebellion was broken. And after that, when I called him, he would come. And the other kids, as they came along, followed that example. That's what I'm saying here. If we will cough up the rebellion, then maybe God can use us, and we can be sharp instruments in his hand to help others. That's what brotherly love is all about. Not just a green feeling, but this gets down to will we or will we not? And I, I firmly believe that God will delight in mercy and love and turn it all around and give us every blessing we ever wanted once this happens. We'll see that as we go on through this series. That God is going to do that. He's promised it. Now, I'll tell one more here. Jeremiah 20, 29. Jeremiah 29. And let's begin in verse 1. Now these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the residue of the elders which were carried away captives. The residue of the ministry of the church. So it applies to our ministry today as well as those of other groups. It applies to all of us. Verse 4, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now here's where he's saying build houses and so on because it is a long time. 
verse 10 shows that. For thus says the Lord that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Now look the way I was feeling toward my son. I'm not here to hurt you, my son. I'm here to hug you and love you and put you on my desk and let you play with pencils and papers. But you want to sit there and rebel. God's attitude toward us is thoughts of peace, not evil. But we have to go through this. Notice verse 12. Then shall you call upon me, and you shall go and pray to me, and I will hearken to you. So he says, after 70 years of being in captive in Babylon, finally, at least some of you, will have learned the lesson. Interestingly, out of the millions probably by then who had gone to Babylon, who had married there, had children there, only 42 to 43,000 said when God released them, I'll go back to Jerusalem. Only a remnant listened. There's the pattern for what's about to happen today. After all those years, just as the church, after all these years. So we're going near the end of that, I firmly believe. Verse 13. And you shall seek me and find me. And here's what I wanted to get to is the point. When you will search for me, you will find me when. You shall search for me with all your heart. Your total being is seeking after God. Those are the ones who are going to find God. Those are the ones who are going to reach out and be answered. Those are the ones that God is going to use to rebuild his church and to be the first fruits and help rebuild physical Israel in the millennium. Then is when God is going to be light in mercy, as we read there in the end of Micah. Now, let's get directly into the book of Nahum. We will go through it fairly quickly. It's a a fairly simple, but a very, very important message. I know I can find it back here. The word Nahum means consolation or comforter. Remember that God says, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. So the setting of the book of Nahum is right after the Assyrian comes into our land there in Micah 5 and destroys physical Israel. God had, as I said before, warned through Jonah, Don't destroy my people. Repent. And they did. But historically, 100, 150 years later, the commentators are not sure exactly when this was written as a judgment against Assyria because they went right back to their wicked ways of violence, destruction, death, and so on. And I don't have time to go into all of those scriptures in Isaiah, but there are many that dovetail exactly with what Nahum says here. Uh, Isaiah 10, for instance, where he says, O Assyrian, it is in your heart to cut off peoples, nations, not a few. Just in there. And that which was innately a part of their genetic makeup came back, even though they had a surface repentance for a while. And that nature is still there. 
of the whole chapter of Isaiah 10 fits in very well here. How can it mean consolation and comforter when it then goes on to describe the destruction of the whole Assyrian Empire, our modern-day Germany and their allies today who come against Israel, ten nations? Well, because it's consolation and comfort to Judah is what we'll get into here. It's comfort to the church. It's comfort ultimately to physical Israel that God is going to deal with our enemies. He's going to take care of them for us. There's no comfort to them, but it is comfort to us. The Bible is not written to the Assyrian, but to us. The judgment here is pronounced on Assyria. The uh, Kyle and Rich commentary divides me into three sequential chapters, and, and he uses the chapter breaks that are in it, chapters 1, 2, and 3. And it's interesting. I, it just struck me this morning that I'd looked this up in the Kyle and Birch uh, commentary. In a sense, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Those are German names. And I suppose that there was Germans who wrote the Kyle and Birch commentary, even though I didn't look it up to see. But the names are certainly there. Uh, it, it's kind of a self-pronouncement. There were other commentaries, but I got this particular point out of that one. And the first chapter, they label that it is God's purpose to inflict judgment on the oppressors of Israel. Chapter 2, they call the joyful news of the conquest, plundering, and destruction of Nineveh. Nineveh being the capital of Assyria and of modern-day Germany and the Assyrians. And then the third chapter they call her or Nineveh's guilt and inevitable ruin. So God will avenge his people. But I spent most of this sermon on preparatory remarks because of why God is going to use the Assyrian to destroy us, which several places in Isaiah and other scriptures indicate is going to happen. Because we need the message today of why this destruction is coming on our people and on the church itself. Now let's, uh, let's go into this a bit. Again, historically, the setting of this book was during the, the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Uh, Samaria, or the northern ten tribes, had already fallen, and Judah was about to fall. So worldwide has already fallen. Those who have split off are about to fall, including us, if we're not very, very careful in, in heeding of God's word. Because a total famine is coming, as per Amos 8. And incidentally, then, the physical nations are going to fall as well, and that's what we have pointed out in Micah 5, that these parallel lines cross, that the physical and the spiritual merge there. So it gets a little trickier to understand, but I, I believe that's what's happening there, that Micah is pointing out, and then after they come into our land and destroy us, then God pronounces in the book of Nahum a trouble against them. So it makes sense in the story flow that Nahum was written shortly after uh, Micah and Isaiah. And in fact, Nahum quotes from Isaiah several times uh, very similar language. But the word is against Nineveh, chapter 1, verse 1. 
the burden, the weight, the judgment. The words of God are against none of us. So that is the subject here. And it is a vision of Nahum the Elkishite. They don't know much about him historically. Uh, it was a small town in Galilee, perhaps, at least according to Jerome. And uh, that's about all we know. But God did give him a vision of what would happen to none of us. God leaves a lot more background for what is going to happen to Israel because God is dealing with Israel first and foremost. And the enemies of Israel, uh, not as much background as needed because he is going to deal with them later on in terms of salvation. Uh, so he just lays it on them here. And he says, God is jealous and the Lord revenges. The Lord revenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, great in power, and will not at all equip the wicked. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and in the clouds of the dust of his feet. So he establishes who he is and what he is going to do. And it is going to happen. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry, dries up all the rivers. Bashan languishes and Carmel, the flower of Lebanon languishes. These are places in Israel. The mountains quake in him, the hills melt, the earth is burned at his presence. That sounds like the end of Isaiah, sounds like what Peter said. So the time setting here is the day of the Lord, right at the end. Verse 6, who can stand before his indignation and who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire and the rocks are thrown down by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows them that trust in him. He is going to essentially destroy most of the population of the earth before this is over. But he does know those that trust in him. He has our hair counted. <laughs> if God allows us to die, if we are not fearing the beast, if we are fearing God, he knows who we are, who have trust and faith in him. And if he does let some of the faithful die, as he did the apostles and various others, it will be at his behest, it will be at his direction, it will be as an example to others. So if God lets you or me die, brethren, that's just simply not a problem. Do we get that? Do we fear him that can destroy both body and soul? But our physical existence is not what's important here. But we can be as a rebellious child and want to hang on to this physical existence. Oh, God didn't make us want to die. Christ didn't want to die either. And yet he was willing for our sakes to die. And so were the apostles who set the example for us upon whom the ends of the world have come. Verse 8, For with an overrunning flood he will make an utter end of the place thereof, and darkness shall pursue his enemies. Speaking specifically here of Nineveh now, or the Assyrians. What do you imagine against the Lord? He will make an utter end. Do they really think they can stand against Jesus Christ? Yes, they do. You see, the Assyrians took the Babylonians captive at one point. Just as the Assyrian is going to come against that which is modern Babylon today and destroy it. And they will destroy Israel. So the beast and the false prophet are going to rise again. And at one point the beast will turn against the false prophet or the great whore 
and destroy her. For while they be filled together with thorns, and while they are drunk as drunkards, they shall be devoured as stubble fully dry. They are going to drink and think they're doing great, and they're riding high, but God will destroy them. There is one come out of you that imagines evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they be quiet, and likewise many, yet thus shall they be cut down, and when he shall pass through. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more, nor will I break his yoke from off you, and will burst your bonds in sunder. Now this is the vision to Nahum, who was an Israelite. And God says he's going to break that burden and that yoke off of Israel that Assyria puts on. Notice verse 15. He addresses Judah again. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him that brings good tidings, that publishes peace. O Judah, keep your solemn peace, perform your vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. So here again we get to instruction to us and the responsiveness we're supposed to have. Interestingly, he quotes Isaiah 52 here. I'll turn back there very quickly. Isaiah 52. We've looked at this before, but I want to tie it into this context as well. Here he's talking about the situation we're in today, chapter 51, 18, when we are in this condition where there is none to guide us among all the sons whom we brought forth as a church. We are basically rudderless and without physical leadership under God while we learn to trust God. <laughs> but he is going to, he tells us here to wake up and to put on our strength and our holy, beautiful garments and to shake the yoke of Babylon off our necks. I'm paraphrasing this. You may be following it. You may not. But I don't want to go through the whole thing. Uh, but down here in verse 7 then, he says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that brings good tidings, that publishes peace. This is what Nahum is quoting that brings good tidings of good, that publishes salvation, that says to Zion, your God reigns. So there is going to come one preaching peace, one that says God reigns, and then it changes to two and says they shall sing together. Then it talks about getting out of the midst of Babylon, uh, Christ doing this for us, and then chapter 54 opens with sing, O barren that did not bear. You who prevailed in pain and in birth and couldn't seem to bring forth, you will bring forth. And then the happiness and the joy and the delighting and mercy that God has promised us at the end of the book of Micah will begin to occur. So what he's talking about here, I believe, are the two witnesses. That God is going to send forth to publish peace and to preach that Christ is going to reign, does reign and will reign. And that's what Micah or Nahum is talking about. Now, keep your finger here, and I'll turn back to Romans 10, because Paul quoted the same thing. Now, remember, Paul thought that the end was coming in his time. Still, by the time he wrote Romans 11, I mean Romans 10, I believe he had that. So he also quoted uh, Isaiah 52, and he was quoting it and applying it to the people that existed then in the first century church. It applies even more today to us. So let's see what Paul says. Chapter 14 of verse 10. Uh, let me back up. Romans 10, beginning in verse 14. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? 
And how shall they preach except they be sent? So God is going to send us those two leaders. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But here is the sad problem that Paul faced with the Romans and the other churches of his era that we face today. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed, who has believed our report? Right after uh, it talks about this there in Isaiah 52. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. This is what we're hearing today. And this should give us faith. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, truly, their sound went into all the earth. And that's going there with the two witnesses. And their words to the ends of the world. But I say, did not Israel know? First, Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest to them that asked not after me. But to Israel, he says, all day long have I stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. Like I did with my son. Seemed like all day I reached out my hands to it. That he was a rebellious and a gainsaying person. He was not. That's what Paul was dealing with with the Romans. That's what we as a church today are dealing with in ourselves. That we have difficulty doing what Isaiah tells us, what Paul tells us, and then what God tells us directly here at the end time, just before the day of the Lord, about the church today, and physical Israel for that matter. The message will go out to all ends of the earth. But the instruction to us, O Judah, church today, that which is left of it, keep your solemn feasts. Interestingly, we're addressing this just before we go to the Feast of Tabernacles, all the fall holy days. So here's a good chance for us to go to the Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Trumpets, Atonement, the whole thing. Here's a chance for us to follow what Nahum is telling us here. O Judah, keep your solemn feasts. We're to go there to worship the King, the Lord of hosts. Zechariah 14. We're to go there to, with all our beings, seek God with our whole heart. And if we do, we will begin to find him and he will begin to answer I don't know the exact time element here, but that is the instruction, and I think it's good that we have an approach to this right now, just before we go. To go there not to be entertained, not there to go mall walking, not there to go to movie theaters, not there to go to country singers down in Branson. We're not going there to be entertained. We're going there to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, to sharpen each other as iron sharpens iron, to fellowship together, as Paul tells us there at the end of Hebrews. We are going there to seek God with all our hearts. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong. If one of you is seen in the mall, you're going to be to fellowship. Don't get me wrong. 
We are there to eat and to drink and to enjoy on a physical level as well. But brethren, we cannot let that be the emphasis. We cannot get excited about all that. There are still many, many who are missing the point in the greater church of God, and I believe within this organization that I'm speaking to today. Every one of us needs to examine our heart and understand why we're going there. It's not just a break from work. It's not a holiday, a vacation. It is a chance to vote our whole being to God, to hearing his instruction, to getting on our knees, to repenting, to treating one another with love and closeness and harmony, peace and love. That's what we're going there to do to stir up, to encourage, to help each other in the goal of worshiping the King, the Lord of hosts. Let's go with that focus. Let's go with that mindset because that's what Nahum is telling us we need to do with the threat of the Assyrian over us, both spiritually and now physically. It isn't too far off, I believe. So this is critical to both keep our sovereignties the way God intended them to be kept and to perform our vows. That covenant we made with God that we would give our lives, heart, mind, body, and soul to Him, to seek Him with our whole heart, to surrender to Him, to be slaves of Jesus Christ, to bring every thought into the captivity of Jesus Christ. That is what we agreed to do when we were baptized. We have a lady here who was baptized four years ago today. Ninety-four years old. Very alert in mind. And seeking the kingdom of God. That's exciting to me that God would call someone ninety years old and give her the opportunity, and don't take this wrong, but to teach an old dog new tricks. <laughs> And I only say it because God is teaching her new tricks. And I visited with her enough last night to know that. And you and I are not too old to learn some new tricks. The old trick being the deception of heart and the selfishness and the self-will and the desire to do our thing as opposed to God's thing. So here's our chance to go and let our light shine before the world and before each other, to encourage each other, to strengthen each other, to keep the solemn peace of God, and to renew and perform the vows that we made at baptism. Remember those words before you went under? shall no more pass through you into verse 15 he is utterly cut off now let's go into chapter 2 which Kyle and Butch call the joyful news of the conquest and plundering and destruction of Nineveh he that dashes in pieces has come up before your face keep the munition watch the way make your loins strong fortify your power mightily now he's still talking to us here to Judah to the church for the Lord has turned away the excellency of Jacob as the excellency of Israel. So we are falling, falling away just like worldwide did. For the emptiers have emptied them out and marred their vine branches. Christ is the vine. We are the branches. And we have been marred. We have been twisted. We have been uh, peeled with a knife. 
are not producing the kind of fruit that God wants to see in his church. A wild vine, as Isaiah 5 says, producing wild grapes. Ezekiel 17, it didn't grow stately, it grew out, but it didn't produce just what God wanted. So he's whipping us into shape that we might produce what he wants us to produce. So he's allowed the Assyrian to take it away spiritually and about to physically and the timelines are coming together when both are going to be enacted upon us unless we are part of that remnant that God saves out of. And this is our chance to be a part of that remnant. So then he goes on talking, let's, let's pick it up verse 4, the chariots shall rage in the streets, they shall jostle one against another in the broad ways, they shall seem like torches, they shall run like the lightnings. I imagine in this vision, Nahum saw modern vehicles running up and down the freeways, just as John saw in Revelation, all of these helicopters and jet planes and so on, and he described them as, as uh, scorpions and, and things that were in his world that he could sort of liken them to because he'd never seen such a thing. Now the commentators say that the sparks of the chariot wheels were coming up from the rocks on the cobbled streets. Well, that may very well have been because the, the pattern was there when ancient Israel and Judah were taken. But to me, it's very clear that uh, these vehicles shining like torches are headlights of Humvees and, and war and military machines and automobiles and so on. So it's talking about right now, or just like ten of us. He shall recount his worthies, they shall stumble in their walk, they shall make haste to the wall thereof, and the defense shall be prepared. The gates of the river shall be opened, the palace dissolved, now he's talking about the Assyrian, and Husab, who was a queen of Assyria, shall be led away captive, she shall be brought up, and her maids shall lead her as with the voice of doves tabering upon their breasts. Doves are helpless, harmless little birds, and they'll be helpless. I think is the picture that Nahum is giving. That the queen of Assyria, all of Syria, going down the tubes, but none of it is of old like a pool of water, yet they shall flee away. Stand, stand, shall they cry, but none shall look back. When God begins to exercise his wrath and fury on the Assyrian who has destroyed us, they'll say, stand, fight. They're all going to run because Christ is going to be fearsome. Verse 10, she is empty and void and waste, and the heart melts and the knees smite together, and much pain is in all loins, and the faces of them all gather blackness. Here's why it's consolation and comfort to us. It's because our enemies are going to be destroyed. Of course, Satan is the final Assyrian, a symbol of that which is evil and against what God has done. That doesn't mean every German person is bad. Don't get me wrong here and don't get God wrong here. Uh, we are all spiritual Israelites once grafted in. It doesn't matter what race we are. And Assyria is a cousin to us as well as Israelites because he was the, Asher was the second son of Shem. So we're kind of cousins and the Edomites are brothers, but that doesn't mean there aren't family squabbles and boy are there. Let's go on to chapter 3. Woe to the bloody city, Nineveh, who has cut off nations, not a few, shed a lot of blood over the years. It is all full of lies and robbery. The prey departs not. The noise of the whip and the noise of the rattling of the wheels and of the prancing horses and the jumping chariots. 
that may be what in modern warfare that uh, that may I'm seeing as well. How, how do you describe something that hops off the ground and up in the air? I guess a jumping chariot is the best he could do. The horseman lifts up both the bright sword and the glittering spear, and there's a multitude of slain and a great number of carcasses, and there's no end of their corpses. Verse 4, because of the multitude of the whoredoms of the well-favored harlot, the mistress of witchcrafts, that sells nations to her whoredoms and families to her witchcrafts. Now that sounds like Revelation 13 to 18. Same type of description of those who have committed whoredoms, witchcrafts, and ruled over the nations. Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will discover your skirts upon your face, or your skirt's going to blow up over your head, in other words. Very embarrassing. Frightening, scary, and then death and destruction come. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. And I will cast abominable filth upon you and make you vile and will set you as a gazing stock. Now Assyria will have made Israel at this point a gazing stock for the whole world. And we will be laughed at and taken into captivity and so on. And God says, I'm going to do the very same thing to you. Verse 7, it shall come to pass that all they that look upon you shall flee from you and say, Nineveh is laid waste. So this resurrection of the beast, the Roman Empire at the end, ridden over by the Assyrian, is going to be laid waste. <coughs> Why do we fear it? God says, don't fear it then, Isaiah. The conspiracy, the confederacy that is against us, he will take care of. And he knows those, as we read, who trust him. Who will we moan her? Who shall I seek comforters for you? Are you better than a popula- than populous node that was situated among the rivers and had the waters round about it as rampant as the sea and the wall was from the sea? Are you better than some of these other nations like Egypt here, Ethiopia and Egypt, that I destroyed? You think you can stand against me? Verse 10, yet was she carried away. She went into captivity. Her young children also were dashed in pieces at the top of all the streets. Uh, it talks about how they will dash our children at the top of all the streets. But God says that which goes around comes around to Syria, and you're going to get it in the neck. And it goes on to describe all he is going to do. I don't know that we need to read all of that right now. We're running out of time, or actually about out of time. Verse 18, let's skip on down there. He talks about the destruction he is going to do, the fire devouring, the sword cutting off, and so on. But in 18, he says, Your shepherd slumber, O king of Assyria. Your nobles shall dwell in the dust. Your people are scattered upon the mountains, and no man gathers them. There is no healing of your bruise. Your wound is grievous. All that hear the brute of you shall clap the hands over you. But on whom have you not wickedness passed continually? You reap what you sow. And since they have reaped such destruction for so many centuries, God is going to bring that destruction on them. So brethren, God is going to take care of our enemies. We see that enemy coming into our land there in Micah. We then see... See, we've drawn from the past here and the present in that sense because Hosea, Joel, and Amos talk about what is happening in the church, that which we've experienced for the last 10, 12 years. 
13, 14 years. But it projects clear on true to the day of the Lord. Then Micah says the physical destruction is going to come, so that puts it just ahead of us in time. See, that's where the timeline is headed right now. We're not far now from the time of the spiritual destruction of the church ending and the physical destruction of the nation beginning, and the destruction of the church then is going to turn both spiritual and physical for those who do not repent and become the remnant who God pulls out, for they will go into tribulation as well, physically. If the spiritual tribulation doesn't wake us up now, we're going into the physical tribulation. That's what it amounts to. Those timelines are going to cross very soon. So Nahum is talking about then the future. Just ahead of us, once we have been destroyed physically as a people, then God is going to destroy those who destroyed us. And this will all culminate in the return of Christ, when he will destroy and put down all peoples and nations. But he addresses specifically the Assyrian here because they are the ones who come against and destroy his people Israel. So he pronounces this judgment, and it's a consolation, it's a comfort to us to know that those who come against us will not go unpunished, that God will take care of them. That doesn't mean the Assyrians are lost forever, because it, we'll get to it later on. It says that the Egyptian, the Assyrian, and the Israelite will be one-third together. Brothers again, close, in the millennium. But this has to come first. Now, of course, there are questions about when because now we've gone from that which we have been experiencing to a little forward into what is just ahead of us here. Well, how long is it before this all happens? We'll address that when we get to the book of Habakkuk, because God has got a storyline going here, and he has one answer after another answer after another answer, as we continue on in this series through the Minor Prophets. He's laying it out in sequence. One thing happens, another thing happens, another thing happens. So we've gone here in Micah 5 through 7 in Nahum into a glimpse not of just what is happening today, but that which is about to happen. And at the same time, even though this is a dire warning and a judgment on Nahum, I mean not on Nahum, on the Assyrian, Yet God tells us and gives us a reminder in the midst of it to keep the solemn feasts of God and perform our vows because this all has to do with Israel. It doesn't have to do with the rest of the world yet. Each in his own order. These people will have an opportunity at salvation later, but yours and mine is now. So as we prepare to go to the Feast of Tabernacle, let's keep these principles in mind to do justly to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God and prepare ourselves to keep the solemn feast and perform the vows that we made at baptism. That's the message for you and me out of the book of Nahum. The dire message is to the assert, but there's also an, an instruction for us because we are the ones that this is all about, brethren. We are the ones called out, the weak and the base that God is going to use to confound the wise. So here's our opportunity to respond to God, not to sit back and shut our jaw like my son did, 
but to lean forward and lift our hands and our hearts and our minds and our souls and our very beings to our God in heaven. And if we do that, God will know those who trust him and who do not fear which is coming, but fear God. End of transmission.